Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Here I have conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. You could call them climate scientists or earth system scientists if you like, something like that. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey, and I started this podcast a couple years ago because I really enjoy talking with and learning from other researchers. I'm always excited to bring you these episodes, and today I'm especially excited to bring you the first of this multi-part series featuring Earth System scientists with disabilities. In this first part, I'll be speaking with my friend and colleague, Dr. Caitlin Naughton. Caitlin is also an oceanographer at the British Antarctic Survey, working primarily on ocean ice computer models. If you've been with the show a while, you might remember her science-focused episode back in 2018. Caitlin speaks with a stammer, which we will discuss in detail in just a minute here, coming up. So the, there's some backstory here to this series. A few months ago, Caitlin approached me about producing an episode featuring Earth System scientists with disabilities. I thought it was a great idea, so uh, I asked her to help me co-produce these episodes because as an able person, so to speak, I think it's critical to get the perspective of someone who has to navigate the world with a disability in the mix at the production level in terms of making decisions about what to keep, how to structure the episodes. We uh, reached out to the community and asked if a few scientists with disabilities could share their perspectives. And we received a really wonderful response. We have uh, one full separate interview recorded in addition to the one that I'm about to bring you now. And we have a number of contributions from other scientists that we'll be bringing you shortly in a third part three somewhere down the line. This whole series is going to be at least a three-parter with possibly more in the future. Uh, I may or may not release them all in order one, two, three, but we will bring them to you. They will, they will be out there. We have the material. By the way, if you are a scientist or someone studying science with a disability listening to this episode, we would love to hear from you. Please feel free to reach out to either myself or Dr. Naughton. And if you're comfortable with the idea, we can share your perspective on a future disability episode as either an audio message recorded by you, a piece of writing that we can read aloud, or a third method that I haven't thought of that I'm blanking on perhaps. Let me know if there's a third method. There probably is. So please feel free to get in touch with us, either Twitter, either via Twitter or email. My uh, direct messages, my DMs are open on Twitter, so feel free to get in touch there. Or you can find our other contact details. They're pretty easy to find at the British Antarctic Survey website. You can find Dr. Naughton on Twitter at Caitlin Naughton, just like her name is spelled. And you can find a collection of her science writing on her blog at climatesight.org, where sight is spelled S-I-G-H-T, like seeing, seeing sight with your eyes. And of course, you can find her published scientific works as well, including some really nice work in the Weddell Sea. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean on Twitter, and you can follow the podcast at ClimateSciPod. Okay, I think that's all that I needed to tell you up top here. So let's go ahead and get into this conversation about navigating the world of science and the world more generally with a stammer, part of our multi-part series on disability in the earth system sciences. Here we go.
said that we wanted to be upfront with this recording, <laughs> that it's a, it's a re-recording. It's a re-recording. Yeah, because we've already had this conversation before, or a version of this conversation, we sh- yeah. I should say. And what we unfortunately found was that the recording, in the recording, uh, you sounded like a robot chipmunk uh, for yeah. reasons that we think we understand now. <laughs> And, uh, but we, we think we've gotten our way around that. So, you know, we should be at least sounding no more robotic than we normally do. Um, if if there's any robotic quality to our speech, it should be at that level anyway. Um, (laughs) so yeah, so this is a, it's an attempt at a conversation, uh, to, to kind of, we're not going to recapture what we talked about the first time exactly, but on the other hand, I mean, we do have this set of notes that you helped me produce beforehand that at least covers the big topics that you wanted to make sure that we touched on. So I think if we, so what I'll do is make sure I look at the list of notes. I have it here in front of me. I'll make sure we at least touched on, you know, those things that, that you wanted to make sure that we got in the episode and, and me too, that we both wanted to get into the episode. Um, yeah. So I guess in that way, it might feel a little bit more like, a traditional interview because I'm kind of, I've got a, you know, I've got a set of things I want to get us through basically. Uh, but I think it'll still come out conversational like the other one did. Um, so I think a nice place to start, this is a multi-part series on disability in the geosciences where here we're taking the fairly broad view of geosciences to include uh, atmospheric science and oceanography and any cryospheric sciences as well so it's kind of there isn't a great term for that you know geosciences people tend to think of hard rock kind of geosciences Um. and geology and things um whereas you know there's not there's not one great term for just like anything earth system related earth system science maybe maybe that's the that could work so the disability yeah so how about disability and earth system sciences maybe that's maybe that's what we should go with uh, yeah. So, a good place to start, I think, based on your notes, anyway. A good pl- <laughs> um, this, like we said, it's a multi-part disability series. But let's start with like, what is a disability? What do you consider, you know, uh, as kind of a good definition or a good working definition of that term? Yeah. So the legal uh, definition varies by country. Uh, but in the UK, it is something along th- the lines of any physical or mental condition that has a significant and long-term impact on your ability to carry out day-to-day activities. So the disability I I have is called stammering which is the same th- thing as stuttering it's just a, a british american gang gang english distinction um and the day-to-day activities which are made much more difficult because of that are basically anything to do with speaking so um um having conversations using the phone, um, doing a podcast, um, anything like that is just, um, it's a lot more challenging, uh, since speak, speaking just 
doesn't come as naturally or um, easily or automatically um, to me as it does to fluent people. Right. Could you say a little more about the neurological basis of stammering? Mm-hmm. So, um, um, the brains of people that stammer, um, their brains, or I should say our brains, um, they produce speech in a slightly different way to everyone else. Um, and you can actually see this on CT scans. Um, the sort of speech path way is just slightly different. And this speech path way is much more prone to sort of breaking down. Um, so for f- fluent people, speaking is fully automatic. You just think of what you, you want to say and you open your mouth and it comes straight out without even having to think about it. Um, I have to sort of negotiate just about every syllable with my body um, since the pathway of thinking sound to figuring out how to say that sound for for some reason just it isn't fully automatic it's it's almost like a form of very selective temporary amnesia. Um, You know, I tell my body do an H and my body sort of responds. I don't know how to to do an H. I forgot gotten um the concept of making the sound of an h is suddenly the most impossible thing that i can imagine and that's a very scary feel thing um but it's something i have experienced I mean, I don't even know how to estimate the order of magnitude, um, how many times. Um, And yeah, that's what speaking is like for me and everyone that stammers, stammers in a slightly different way. And it also varies over time and the various with situations. Uh, for, for example, I'm almost f- fully f- fluent when I speak with my husband or 
when I speak to cats or small children or or anything like that. And in some situations, I will randomly go very, very fluent. And sometimes those are stressful situations. Um, some form or some amount of stress. Uh, sometimes just switch switches off the stammer. Um, reading off of a page a lot of the t time, I don't stammer. It, it's a very mysterious thing, and it's something that, that, that science doesn't fully understand, um, but it affects about 1% of adults. I remember you telling me that figure, and it's pretty astounding, you know, 1%, because mm -hmm. it's, you definitely don't see that level of representation uh, anywhere, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's just yeah. uh, that contrast is pretty striking between the level that you're saying and the level of representation that you see, you know, whether it's in media or in science or, I mean, pick any field, basically. And yeah. we also have talked in the past a little bit about how important that can be, how important that kind of representation can be, because uh, basically, um, well, if you don't have any presenters or any um, you know, media type people speaking with a stammer, then people aren't used to it. Then people don't really get used to kind of listening to that rhythm and to in ingesting it in a way. And uh, it creates kind of a kind of a blind spot, doesn't it? Or kind of a, an expectation of a... Uh, so I guess that's one of the... And again, I, I remembered a caveat that I wanted to put in here that I... I did remember to say at our first recording session is that uh, with a conversation like this, you know, as an able person, there's plenty of opportunity for me to put my foot in my mouth. And I'm aware that that is the potential. I'm getting more confident. I mean, now, you know, you and I've had more conversations and I've done more reading and talked to more people about, you know, the broader disability kind of experience. And um, I have some ways to relate to it indirectly, not in terms of like my own individual uh, health, but, um, you know, my partner had a chronic illness for a long time. Okay. Di different than a disability perhaps, but it's still like a thing you have to live with and a thing you have to figure out how to navigate. So I only wanted to say that, yeah, there's the potential for me to put my foot in my mouth and I'm very happy to be, um, to, to receive information <laughs> for you to tell me that like, uh, actually <laughs> that's not quite the right way to think about it. Or have you considered this? Or so I'm very, I'm very open to that. Um, yeah, from from you and from other people as well, from listeners too. Mm -hmm. I uh, really appreciate that you, you say that, and I understand that um, people that aren't disabled, or you know, people that aren't part of of any underrepresented group, uh, whether it's gender or r racial or anything like that. Um, I understand that there is like a level of fear of saying the wrong thing and causing further damage. Um, but, but I also think that as long as you're in t t 
intentions are good and you're willing to be sort of corrected, um, that, you know, that figure stops these sorts of conversations from happening at all. And I think that's very damaging. I am very happy to talk about my stammer with anybody that that will sincerely listen. But most fluent people are, I find so scared of saying the wrong thing that they don't ever bring it up. And so I'm always the one that has to start those sorts of conversations. Otherwise, I can just sort of feel the awkwardness faster, you know? Right, right, yeah. Um, and along those lines, would you could you tilt your camera down a little bit? Do you have a way oh, yeah, to tilt yeah. your... Yeah, hey, there you are. Sorry, I switched <laughs> off um, the, 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 uh, the self for you um uh, okay yeah mm-hmm. otherwise uh, i'm up staring at my own f- face and it's just um distraction you, you can do the gallery view thing um oh well do do whatever you like to feel comfortable totally totally fine yeah, you know, yeah. however you want to let me know um but yeah. uh yeah cool okay so um a few different ways we could go and one of them, you mentioned always having to bring it up. You know, you mentioned having mm-hmm. to, uh, you described it in the notes we put together as, you know, coming out as a disabled person and mm. the the experience of, of that, um, mm-hmm. you know, making, mm-hmm. That's an interesting one. making an analogy there. And mm-hmm. I remember you mentioned that, you know, with stammering, it's not like, I mean, it's, it's, it's potentially as soon as you start talking, it becomes something that you are kind of already coming out, right? And I, yeah. I would guess that that if if you are a person who stammers, that's kind of a scary threshold to cross. Right? Mm-hmm. You, you don't know what you're going to run into. Are you going to run into somebody who, like you said, now is nervous and now doesn't know what to say and now maybe they feel like a, a fish out of water? Are you going to encounter somebody who doesn't even mention it and seem seem okay with it? And Actually, just to quickly touch back on our representation point, I mean, that's if people with a stammer are poorly represented, then people just don't have like a template for, oh, here's what that, here's what the experience of talking to a person with stammering might be like, and here's how to do that. And here's like, and you've, yeah. you've given me some really nice tips along, along the way for um, how to, you know, positively open up the space to talk with somebody with a, with a stammer to help them. Should we? Should we touch on those? Do you want to talk, talk a little bit about those, about how to like make somebody with a stammer uh, more more comfortable in the conversation? Yeah. Um, so I think it's very simple. You just re- re- really have to be uh, really patient um, and focus on what they're saying uh, rather than how they're s- saying it. Um be sure that um, you don't do the face. Um, a lot of fluent people, when I speak to them, get a sort of mildly terrified expression oh, on no. their face. Oh, and no. that is not helpful. 
Um, um, and yeah, uh, d- d- don't f- 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 finish the sentences or the words of people that stammer. I don't want to generalize, um, but I I would say that the the vast majority of people that stammer really don't like that, since it sort of takes our agency um, away from us. It is really important to us uh, that we finish the word that we're trying to say. And it also is a sign of impatience if somebody is speaking for you. You know, it shows that they aren't really um, uh, willing to to let you speak. Um, But something which is similar to finishing sentences, but a bit more sort of insidious and extremely, extremely common is um, when somebody is stammering, they assume they know the word that you're saying and they go on and say their response without letting you finish. Um, And this often makes me sort of philosophered and I get really stuck and while I'm stuck that person will say like three, four, five sentences and I'm still stuck on the M and mm -hmm, it is really frustrating so especially for people that stammer with sort of um silent blocks um make very sure that they are finished speaking when you think they're finished it as opposed to just um stuck on a sound yeah I was just imagining trying to have a political conversation, like, well, you know, I voted for, okay, then stammer there, and then the other person assumes you voted <laughs> in this direction, and then they start talking to you in a certain way, and you're like, wait, hang on, let's back mm-hmm. up. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the thing about uh, people guessing what I'm trying to say, yes, it's, it's, sometimes they do get it wrong, and that really causes some misunderstandings oh yeah 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 the the kind of impatience that you spoke to i think is really relatable even though i don't have a a stammer i think okay i'm gonna be a little potentially putting my foot in my mouth so please know that i am not trying to overgeneralize or over explain anything and um and by the way i don't think that understanding somebody else's perspective is the same you, you don't have to do that to have empathy for them and to accept their experience right you you should just accept people's experiences like yours and say okay i hear you and i will take that into my brain and i'll incorporate it um, yeah. but, but sometimes it's useful to try to relate to those experiences because i i can relate to the impatience you're kind of talking about 
partly because um, most times I don't think I have a very like um, confident, dominant sort of you know conversation style. I like to keep things more relaxed. Um, I mean, I can get energetic and hyped up sometimes, but I, I don't like the feeling that I'm steamrolling over people, so I'll often kind of def defer. But that means that I take a little bit longer to say some things. It might take me longer to kind of articulate something. I don't know. I like working on that slower frequency. That works for me. You know, I don't like the rushed kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes when you talk with somebody who, you know, maybe they're not quite as patient, um, you know, it can feel like they're just steamrolling over you. And it feels like that, like I'm not really able to quite articulate the thing I want to articulate because they've already taken the ball and have run with it. You know, they're already halfway down the field. And I'm like, well, yeah. okay, you could go that way, I guess. <laughs> that's not the way I was imagining going, but that's fine. Uh, again, not yeah. so that it, it is, um, I think probably we could benefit from just generally giving each other more space and having more patience overall mm -hmm. and, you know, talking with somebody who, who does have a stammer. Um, okay. Let me know if this is a dumb thing to say, but it, it's sort <laughs> have of, <a> go. <laughs> it's sort of, it's sort of okay practice for that. It's sort of like, you know, we'll just wait, just be patient and let the other person articulate yeah. what they want to articulate. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think, sorry, I was so excited. I jumped straight in. Um, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> Here I am saying, don't interrupt me. And I go to interrupt you. You know, everybody does it. Yeah, it yeah. happens. It happens sometimes. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I think it's okay practice for that. Like, I think it's, it can be decent practice for like, well, just take your time, you know, let the other person, there's no real rush. Uh, you know, come on. We're, if you're trying to have a, an in-depth conversation, uh, most of the time you do not need to rush. You know, this is not an ER. Mm. This is not an emergency room situation for most of us. Most of the time we can take our time and slow down a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I have found that um, in talking to people with stammer over the years, I feel like it has helped me hone my patience a little bit in the way that you're talking about, about like, just make, mm. make the space, just make the space for the person and let mm -hmm. them, let them do their thing. Mm -hmm. um, um, I, I think that's a really important point, which speaks to something in our society, which is damaging to fluent people, and especially people that stammer, is that there's this obsession with um, fast, fluent speech, with efficient communication. Um, you know, you have to get your message across in one sound bite in one tweet um and and you have to do that as f f fast as you possibly can before someone interrupts um you know an example specific to s s science is these um lightning lectures when you give a post and you're supposed to give like a one minute pitch for that poster those things are the bane of my existence i cannot stand them they stress me out yeah, you know i bet so i bet so yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and you've got people all around you you know you're gonna have to do it multiple times as people come around to your poster i bet that is stressful and it uh, isn't um the actual post sessions it's the ones 
where everyone lines up and everyone does oh. it to the full audience. I see. And there's a timer in the second that you go one second over the allotted time, some sort of like bell rings. Yeah. yeah. Um, those are really stressful. And, and, you know, that that's the sort of thing where just in the past few years, I've finally had this sort of confidence to, to ask for those timers to be switched off. Mm-hmm. But for all of my years of speaking until then, I had this idea that I had to follow the same rules as everybody else and my disability it wasn't an excuse um, and so um, the really difficult thing about speaking within a time limit when you stammer is the stammer is so variable um, that I mean, your rate of speech can vary by a factor of two, and you really have no idea how much the stammering will slow you down until you get up there and start speak- speaking. And so, to be on the safe side, if it was a one minute lightning lecture, I would prepare something which was the 30 seconds when I said it fluently to the cat. Um, and so that, that then, um, in all but the most extre- extreme cases, I sh- sh- should be able to um, say that the 30 seconds spiel within one minute um, um, even if I'm stammering a lot but then in practice I um, I end up only being allowed to say half as many words as everybody else I have to be um, twice as concise Um, but I think that's sort of unfair and that's the that that's the concept behind uh, special accommodations is that everybody f- following the the same rules um, it isn't f- fair it's it, it actually disadvantages the those whose bodies just weren't built to fit those rules yeah yeah exactly that actually could lead us really nice into something nicely into something but i wanted to react to a couple of things that you said there because one of them is that i totally i'm so on board with this thing you pointed out that we're all talking too quickly (laughs) like at conferences it's just an information fire hose and you know (laughs) there's a reason that by, you know, day two or day three, uh, for me anyway, I'll just speak for myself, at those conferences, I'm already exhausted. 
Mm. And part of, I know part of why I'm exhausted is I've been sitting through session after session of everybody just opening up their information fire hose and trying to get as much information out to me as quickly as possible. When honestly, I know this is going to sound harsh. You could cut 90% of the presentation and I would get the <laughs> same amount out of it. Like literally these talks that we give, you know, just about all you can do is only the broadest brushstrokes and the very like highlight statements. And I know that it can be a scary experience to be up there and to not provide every, every caveat and to not provide every like, but, but please don't attack me, <laughs> but, but please don't. <laughs> but we, we have to be a little more open to that. I think if we want to slow down and have more effective uh, conversations and more effective communication, um, because at present we're all just saying too many words to each other too quickly. That's the problem actually is the speed. It's not actually the amount of information. It's this, the delivery mm -hmm. speed. And there's, there's a rate, a maximum rate at which most, most of us can take in that kind of information, especially if it's not our field or our little subfield, then it mm -hmm. can be, it can be pretty draining to, um, you know, try to understand what's going on and, talk after talk you don't know the acronyms you don't know the assumptions you don't know the background conceptual picture that people work with necessarily so you're having to kind of quickly infer all of that while you're taking in new information forget it it's it's exhausting um so really i think if we could just give really really highlight statements about what we're saying then that would be better by the way i'm not claiming to be perfect at that um i've been guilty of giving really dense talks sometimes, you know, I try not to, um, I, I, occasionally it's kind of what is sort of asked for it occasionally. Like, I mean, you know, let, let's say you've got six minutes to tell a funder about all the amazing stuff you've done with your work, <laughs> then, well, okay. Then the tendency is to sort of like, I need to make it look like I've done a lot of work. I have done a lot of work and I need to make that apparent. Uh, that's actually something that I didn't appreciate until later. It was like, well, sometimes the speakers at conferences aren't talking to the scientists in the audience. Sometimes they're talking to the funders who are also mm -hmm. in the room and showing mm -hmm. them like, look what I've done with your money. I've done all this amazing stuff. Um, okay, so that's, that's a quick reaction. I think we should have more conversations about what mm -hmm. the heck to do with conferences because uh, they're not quite optimized. They're definitely not optimized for actual information and for sharing ideas. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that when you, um, for a while until recently, that you sort of had internalized the idea that, well, I need to play by the same rules as everybody else, that I need to make the adjustments as the person with the disability. And you said that recently you kind of crossed more of a threshold into saying, well, hang on, no, it's, we should be making a, making space for people with disabilities. We should be lowering some of those accessibility barriers because it's the right thing to do because we're artificially keeping people out of science and out of society by having these barriers there that we might not even think about. So you've, you've framed this to me before as the uh, medical model of disability versus the social model of disability. And would you walk us through like, what those two, they're kind of two contrasting worldviews, right? They're two contrasting ways of seeing disability in relation to society. Yeah. Uh, so the medical mo mo model disability says that people are disabled because of a problem with their 
bodies or with their brains. And in order for those people to fully participate in society, um, they have to go and get their bodies or brains fixed, Mm. you know, um, whether that's surgery or physical therapy or um, speech therapy in this case. Um, But then there is the awkward um, question of what if it's a disability that can't be fixed? or where the, the fixes are very sort of uncertain or sort of unreliable or very so much from person to person that um, you can't count on them. So that's the medical model, but then the social model says that People are disabled because they are living in a society that wasn't built for their bodies or their brains. And in order for the disabled person to fully participate in society, um, the society itself should change. So um, a, a very sort of um, basic example of this is somebody that has a condition which m- 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 means they're unable to walk and so they're in a wheelchair. Um, the medical model would say this person somehow has to learn to walk again and the social model would say um, all buildings should be accessible there should be lifts and there should be ramps yeah then in the states anyway the americans with disabilities act from from what i know was like a big step in that direction of moving away from the medical model towards the Mm. um the social model because it actually had a legal requirement there's actually it created a legal requirement that buildings be accessible that they have ramps, that they have lifts where needed. And I, I would like to think that that helped, but if nothing else, it kind of put into actual legislation, into a law that like, no, this is the direction we need to be moving. Mm-hmm. And there, it's, it's not only, it's moving towards a more compassionate and inclusive view of, of society and a healthier view, you know, in my mind. I mean, it's a view that kind of asserts that every human lives have dignity people have dignity and they deserve to be able to function in society Mm -hmm. and so let's make some accommodations for that and i think that 
I think we could go pretty aggressively down that road these days. Like we, we and that would be a good thing. You know, like how do we mm-hmm. accommodate for uh, people with autism? How do we accommodate yeah. for, you know, for like neurodivergence? How do we accommodate for disability? Yeah. How do we accommodate for um, people from different backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds? How do we make sure that we're not excluding people uh, just in these really arbitrary and unfair ways? And that takes some level of, of compassion and some willing to willingness to to consider that we might have blind spots and to consider that we might be excluding people for, you know, for no reason at all, for silly reasons. Um, yeah. So hopefully we're moving kind of in that, mm-hmm. in that way. I do think that it is, um, that it varies by the disability though. I think society is pretty firmly in the social model for people with mobility ish ish use um so um so that's the accessibility buildings that you were talking about but a lot of disabilities especially um um neurodiversity as you were just saying um have historically been very very firmly in the medical model and they've been so pathologized and stamp stampering is a fairly extreme example of that it's it's really just been in the past few years um that the concept of the social model disability as it applies to stampering has started to be widely accepted this sort of um overarching philosophy which existed uh, prior to that um, was sort of giving the message that that the only acceptable way to exist in society is as a fluent person. And so people that, that stammer should do everything in their power to become a fluent person. And I think that that sort of obsession with fluency is really counterproductive um, in in many cases it isn't realistic um, and I don't think it's very helpful. I think the most helpful thing is for people that stammer to learn how to peacefully coexist with their stammers. And that, that, that could involve some speech therapy, but I th- th- think it 
that also involves some changes in society. So that stammering is seen as acceptable. The picture that you've given me is almost one of kind of a partnership of saying, okay, well, as somebody with a stammer, you know, if you can connect me with some resources, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to engage with those, but it's important not to like romanticize that idea and to pretend like that that's just going to remove stammering and going to make it possible for someone to be fluent all the time. But that partnership mm -hmm. almost feels like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, um, you're willing to engage with those programs and see if they can help you become fluent, more, more fluent, but that's not, but society also needs to kind of meet you halfway and to make yeah. some room for it for you and to make room for, for you to be able to, um, like you said, peacefully coexist with your stammer and to not feel guilty about it or to not feel ashamed about it and to just say, yeah, it's part of who I am and I deserve to be out in the world and I deserve to, you know, be a scientist and write papers and give talks and, 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 and make, you know, have, have normal conversations and, you know, do all the things that people do. Um, and th therefore like, and you're, you're, you're kind of asserting that right. You know, you're kind of asserting that, like, yeah, I deserve to be out here. Yeah. Um, and you're saying, society, I need you to kind of meet me halfway on this. Make accommodations for me. You know, stop it with the, maybe we can get specific. So let's say, what kind of accommodations would be useful for somebody with a stammer? Like, how should we change? We can be concrete if you want. We can just talk about science. And we already touched on the the lightning yeah. round kind of talk mm -hmm. idea. Are there other aspects in science you want to talk about in terms of accommodations? Um, so I th th think um, that anything that involves speaking to a time limit um, is very problematic for people that, that stammer. Um, and so anything like that, there should be an accommodation to either extend that time limit or just switch off the time more. Um, so beyond that, um, I th think it starts really getting a bit more vague and a bit fuzzy and a lot about just people's attitudes changing. Um, but something I've been thinking about a lot recently is the obsession with a uh, spoke, spoken word as the best and most authentic form of communication. Um, and you see this everywhere. Like the idea that in order to get to know someone, you have to speak to them because that is when they are their 
most authentic self. And at least for me, that just isn't isn't true. Since when I'm speaking, my my authentic self is sort of um, buried by all of the effort it takes to speak. Mm. I would say if you really want to get to know me, written communication is where I am able to really be myself and say what I want to say exactly how I want to say it um, without having to divert a large part of my brain just to the effort of speech. You've Along those lines, you've had a blog for many years, the uh, mm. Climate Site, S-I-G-H-T. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a bit sparse since my job has steadily got um, busy, busier. Um, but th- there is something c- coming out on there soon. Nice. Yeah. So we touched on this a little bit already in terms of, you know, when somebody meets you, interacts with you, what are some things to do that are helpful? What are some things to do that are not helpful? No, things to avoid, <laughs> things that are not helpful. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on in that area? I don't think so. I think uh, those are pretty simple rules that just uh, boil down to patience. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I was uh, wondering if we could have a quick break. Oh, yeah, of course. Okay, cool. So we're back from our break. Here we are. And it was a good break, right? Like, it was a nice... I, I don't know. I feel refreshed. Mm. I feel... I had a stretch. It was good. Yeah, I didn't go anywhere, but I feel fine. <laughs> so the... Maybe the last thing. We don't have to wrap up, but it it's could be a kind of nice capstone if it ends up that way is are there any good things about your disability you know it obviously is something that you've had to approach in a particular way Um, you've had to um, you know figure out how to peacefully coexist with it and I wonder if you know on reflection if you can find any good things about the experience that it's given you or the experience of living with it has given you is that, would you like to talk about that some? Yeah, so I sort of alluded to this girl earlier, but I really think that growing up with a stammer has made me a better writer. Um, something about having a lot of things to say and not being able to say them very easily um, means that that they tend to get channeled into writing. And also people that stammer uh, tend to know a lot of 
synonyms. Uh, so um, that certainly helps. Oh, though I don't switch words to hide my stammer nearly as m m much as a lot of people do just since my stammer is a bit um, unpredictable. Um, and I think that being a good writer has been really helpful, my, uh, really helpful for my career. You know, as scientists, we're writing all the time. Um, and something else um, th that I wanted to express, um, but I don't think I could express it nearly as well as somebody else, uh, which is another writer. Um, it's the novelist David Mitchell, um, um, who stammers and who wrote um, one of the best essays um, on stampering I've ever read. It's called 13 Ways of Looking at a Stammer. And um, yeah, I'm just going to have a go at reading uh, n n number n nine, which is a stammer is an empathy generator. That would be great. Yeah, please do. Coming over here. Um, who would I be if I'd n n never stammered at all? If that day, th 36 y y years ago, I'd said, Napoleon, just fine. And everything else since. Like all those people out there, the normal people who don't need to negotiate with their speech disorders, who can speak their mind as naturally as breathing. For years, when I believed all you need is willpower, I'd decide, right, today's the magic day that from, from today, I'd stammer no m m more and be like everyone else. N n now I'm no longer so sure I'd wish it away quite so quickly. If by doing so, I would also have to lose what my stammer has taught me. Not just about speech disfluencies, not just about practical linguistics, but, but about life lived outside the kingdom of the able, the land of hunky-dory, the state of well-being where your mind and body function as they are supposed to. I know a mild speech disfluency is a very m mild affliction indeed compared to what untold mil 
fans, hundreds of male fans tolerate. But I like being a bit of an expert on life with a stammer. I'm proud of my knowledge of this tiny, tiny area of the human condition, and I wouldn't want to lose it. It makes me more compassionate to other stammerers, of course, but I also believe it gives me a slight connection with other comrades in adversity. If life is a journey from ignorance to some kind of enlightenment, then a built-in disability is a sort of head start. I'm not romanticizing it or recommending, and I'm not agreeing with the Pope who reportedly told the parents of their kid wracked with cerebral palsy that God had made their son the way he is to give us all a lesson about how to love a sentiment that makes me wince. I'm not saying that enlightenment is the purpose of disability, but I am saying that a degree of eventual enlightenment is very often a side effect of a disability, if only because enlightenment can often be the only way of getting through to Friday. Is there more? Oh, that's funny. My version has a little bit more that I'm looking at. I think it's a better... And you like that ending? if it stops at that sentence, it is. But that's why that's why I hesitated because I was looking, I was reading along with my version that you sent yeah. me. Yeah. And there's another two sentences. <laughs> but if you like that version better, let's go with that. That's beautiful. <laughs> let's go with that. It's very nice. Yeah. yeah, it's it's really beautiful. Like you said, it's. I I want to react to it a little bit if that's if that's all right. Yeah. Because yeah, go ahead. A couple of the things that I thought about as I was reading that. Um, you know, one of them, I, I appreciated the statement about, how do I want to say this? So the, the Pope apparently telling somebody that, oh, well, your kid is, has cerebral palsy uh, so that we can all uh, learn to love. I agree that that's uh, cringe inducing mm -hmm. and kind of a horrible thing to say to somebody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there are there are better ways to phrase like an idea around that neighborhood. And some of those ideas, at least in a lot of spiritual traditions, there's a common thread that, you know, the way to 
if you want to call it enlightenment or if you want to call it just a better sense of connectedness with with other people and with other beings and with everything around you that kind of interconnectedness that kind of feeling of being part of the one thing that is the universe that um often a way to get in touch with that is is suffering and that's kind of a common thing you see in a lot of you know spiritual traditions not just western ones but eastern ones as well there's the mm. idea of like well suffering is how you know you you access some of those places uh those those places of feeling connected and of feeling uh kind of more alive in a way because of that feeling of connectedness and here suffering could just be defined as not getting your way you know it doesn't necessarily have to be something horrible uh, or you know huge it could just be not getting your way so i it my feeling based on what you were saying and on the lovely you know words of david mitchell there as well that stammering in particular it gives you this constant or frequent experience of not getting your way you know you have a feeling of like i want to say this and your body says yeah maybe no. we'll see <laughs> maybe not uh, yeah I don't, I don't feel like it you'll have to wait <laughs> yeah you'll have to wait so i appreciated that sentiment of like it might give you a head start on the way to you know it might give you a a way in possibly to some of those feelings of interconnectedness i i could also imagine that i mean people could have a very different reaction right you, you can by not getting your way by being confronted with a stammer i mean i imagine you, you could also go the other way of getting really angry about it and of getting like well this is so this is such bs and this is so unfair i just want to be myself um, but yeah. i guess that doesn't really get you anywhere i su suppose you know it just gets you no. feeling negative and it gets you feeling down exactly so if you you have to find a way, like you said, to peacefully coexist with something that is constantly telling you no, something that is constantly yeah. telling you no, you're not going to have it the way you want. Um, yeah. And the, the, uh, so the idea of suffering and not getting your way, people also talk about it in terms of vulnerability, like feeling vulnerable as in being very aware that even though we have a will and sometimes that will can be very strong, you know, it, it it, at the same time we live in these fragile physical bodies that can get sick you know we can die we can um have various impediments that we have to deal with that are just sometimes you can't really get past them and it's it's feeds into that experience of suffering of not getting your way and of, of vulnerability so i i i I do. Yeah, I appreciate that point. And I'm not sure how much I'm adding here, but I just wanted to react to it and to say that I, I heard in it a thing that, you know, does seem to exist in a lot of spiritual traditions mm -hmm. uh, and that suffering and, and all that. Um, yeah. So I think, is there anything else you want to talk about? Have we, uh, I mean, we did cover pretty much everything on the list to possibly kind of wrap up where we started the idea of representation also that can really help yeah because then that gives young kids who have a stammer it gives them some examples they can look out in the world and say like oh well there's somebody mm -hmm. who's stammering who you know they're in this kind of career or they have this kind of um you know life and just having more examples out there more positive places where people can see themselves is important yeah it can reduce shame it can reduce um that kind of feeling of not really knowing 
you know, if you're going to be okay and if you're going to be able to, to find a way to find your place. And, uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's important work to do and it's compassionate work to do. Mm -hmm. I also think a really good way to address that is for people with disabilities to be connected with each other. Yes. Um, it wasn't until I came to the UK um, at the age of 25 that I'd really even met or spoken with anyone else that stammered. Um, as far as I could tell, especially as a child, um, I was the only person in the world with this condition. And so, you know, you find the way to spin it as being some sort of, you know, something that is your fault, that only if you uh, worked a little bit, bit harder, um, you would speak a bit more fluently. But then when I came to the UK, I really think that this is one of the best countries in the world in which to stammer. Um, that there is a really strong support structure in the UK. Um, there's organizations like the British Stammering Association. Um, the, 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 there is some very excellent um, and social model-based speech therapy at the city lit center in London. Um, there was recently a book published uh, called Stampering Pride and Prejudice, uh, which um, I don't think is hyperbolic to say um, revolutionize the way I see myself. Um, and in the UK, it's, um, it's also very um, easy to join um, basically meetup groups uh, with people that stammer. And there isn't really anything as transformational and liberating as somebody that stammers. Being in a room where everybody else stammers and speaking. And, you know, it really makes me conscious that when I speak with anyone else, there's this unconscious thought in the back of my head that I am 
different f- from all of these other people. And, you know, that difference just keeps presenting itself. When I speak with other people that, that stammer, it's almost like strange in that my brain keeps looking for that difference that I'm so used to and it isn't there and it feels strange that it isn't there like for the first time not being the odd one out in the room I think really does wonders I suspect it might feel like letting your guard down in a very specific way of mm. not having to quite be as uh, protective of a certain particular part of yourself of just, you can be open and you can be yourself and you can, you can let out a, a sigh of relief sort of along that particular dimension. And that, yeah. that kind of thing could be such a calming experience and it, yeah, it can be the kind of experience you go back to mentally over and over again and say like, okay, I remember that time I was in a, you know, house full of people and they were all, or pub or whatever. And like, you know, and that we all shared this thing in common and it was uh, calming. And it was, like you said, it's an experience of feeling like you have something in common of uh, feeling that kind of common ground over something which is so personal and so, um, it's something that you kind of can't help but share with with the world if you're going to be in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's mm-hmm. that's really that's really nice. That's beautiful. Um, so we uh, have covered all the stuff on the list, and mm-hmm. I don't want to artificially wrap us up if there's other things you want to talk about. But um, I think we've done well. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so too. I think we've covered a lot, and so if it's okay, I mean, what I can say is, um, yeah, thank you. Caitlin, for coming to me, you know, with this idea of, hey, let's co-produce some episodes on disability in the Earth System Sciences, and uh, that's our new title. We can go with that now. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, an idea that I think is really exciting because it improves, it's, it's pushing down that road of, like, representation and trying to lower some of the barriers and that's good stuff. That's just like positive, a positive thing to put in the, out in the world, I, I hope. Um, so it's been such a great experience for, for me talking with you uh, so openly about stammering and about other disabilities. You know, we've recorded other conversations already and we've had other contributions from lots of lovely people about their experiences with different disabilities and different dimensions of that. And um, that's been... Uh, eye-opening for me in some ways and it's been um, calming for me in some ways because I now feel a little less ignorant and I now (laughs) feel a little more confident so like when I you know encounter somebody who um, you know maybe has one particular disability or the other it just gives me more confidence I I think I was reasonably confident already in in many of those dimensions but like it's just it's just bolstering that for me so it's been hugely valuable for me and i really appreciate the opportunity to do that work to do that that emotional um, mental work so thank you yeah thank you for the idea and thanks for partnering with me on that uh thanks for sort of providing this 
platform and for being such a good listener. Oh, thank you. That's nice yeah. to hear. Yeah. Uh, anything else? Or is that, is that the end? So. I think we're good. Okay. Stop, stop, stop. Thank you, Caitlin. In the edit? Yeah, well, well, we'll just stop it. And then okay, <laughs> great. I'll push stop. We'll just stop things. it. Yeah, there we go. Okay. <laughs> stop recording. There you have it. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed that. My conversation with Dr. Caitlin Naughton on navigating the world of science with a stammer. We'll be back with more disability episodes in the future, so uh, keep an eye out for those. Thanks again to Caitlin Naughton, Dr. Naughton, for co-producing this series with me. You can find, like I mentioned in the intro, you can find her on Twitter at Caitlin Naughton, just like her name is spelled. And you can find her science writing, a collection of her science writing, on her blog at climatesite.org. Okay, yep, I'm at Dan Jones Ocean, and you can follow the podcast at Climate SciPod. Okay, so I said I'd share something personal at the end of each episode, for better or for worse, so here we go. Today I was doing yoga. I stretched out a little too far, and uh, I didn't injure myself, but I felt pretty emotional. Something clicked, and I was just a bit overwhelmed for a minute. Does that ever happen to you? Is that a thing? Human bodies are really weird. Uh, I still don't know how to live in one. So anyway, I hope you're well. Hope you're doing all right. Hope you're taking care of yourself. Um, So yeah, I'm okay. My family's okay. They're fine. I hope you and your loved ones are all doing well. We'll be back with more conversations about disability and more conversations about science in general. So be well. Take care. Bye-bye.